0: It is time to head north. I'm your host, Natasha Ryan. I also happen to be the VP of Communications for the North Group. I have Steve Hernandez on today from the North Group and Michelle Gay from Safe and Sound Schools. Um, Michelle, it is such an honor to have you back on the podcast. Um, Your work is so inspirational. Um, For those of you who don't know, Michelle lost her daughter, Josephine, in Sandy Hook. And when I say she has made it her life's work to try to keep that kind of pain from happening to other parents. I mean it sincerely. And we have so much respect for what you do. If you want to just kind of
1: add on a little bit about safe and sound and, and your background, I love to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's good to, it's good to be back. Um, good to, you know be, be part of the conversation again. It feels like it's been too long. Um mm-hmm. but yeah, safe and sound is very much the legacy of my little girl. Um and, and it's not just my little girl. Um my co-founding partner Alyssa and I founded this organization together and and we honor her daughter Emily as well in everything that we do. So it is as you said it's about making sure that this doesn't happen elsewhere. It doesn't need to happen. And there are so many things that we can do. Sometimes it feels like we get caught up in in all sorts of rabbit holes and uh, arguments. And um, the reality is that as we were beginning to experience that in our community, Alyssa and I both looked at each other and thought, okay, well all that can keep going, um, but but we have to get to work. And, and so that's very much what it's about is just finding good people and pushing up our sleeves and making it happen so we can do better for our kids.
0: I love that. And Steve, of course, the North Group, you know, everything we pride ourselves on is making the world a safer, better place. And that surrounds a lot of the time kids, because we all have kids, we love kids. And, um, you know, Oxford happened in our backyard. And Steve, why don't you talk a little bit just about your background, but mainly why we're having this why this conversation today is so personal for you?
2: Yeah, so... Michelle, I, I just got to say, it's such an honor. Um, I, was, I was doing some research on your guys' organization and to see people that have been through it um, living that fight, because it is a fight. It's a fight against it, – it, we have a heart problem in America, right, um, globally, I'll say. And, um, you know, someone asked me recently, I was speaking to a group on uh, violence, and they said, so what is the problem? So we can go political, we can go guns, we can do all this, but it's a heart problem, right? It's a, it's a heart problem, especially when it comes to children. So a lot of my efforts and TNG's efforts and the team has, has been spent around, you know, how do we look for different ways and different solutions to solve problems, whether it's intelligence training practices or situational awareness or security functions, you know, and I watched some of your interviews and, and you're spot on. I mean you're spot on you know we have people that have been in this industry for 20 30 years that aren't saying the things you're saying um and and it's just awesome to hear so my hat goes off to you there and one question i have is and and this has been something that's been on my mind you know people say well why why do you want to put all this capital and resources and into into this when there's a lot of companies doing school safety and active shooter mitigation And I said to someone recently, I said, you know, I can't understand. I I hope I never have to look across that dinner table and where my son likes to sit. That seat's empty, right? Um, Told you, Tosh, this one was going to be a hard one for me.
1: Yeah, no, it's always hard. It is. It is. It's so personal. Our there are babies, and there are future, and the center and the heart of our communities. And, you know, I, I think that's kind of what it comes down to is that, you know, it, it's worth all the hard work, all the frustration, all the, you know, that's why, you know, that's the answer to that question is because it matters, you know, because I have a child because I, I'm an aunt or, you know, I'm a teacher yeah. and I love kids, um, they're worth it. They're, they're the future. So, um, so absolutely we got to run it down.
2: So, Michelle, sorry, go ahead. So, sorry. I. So when, when I say that, you know, when I tell people, I can't imagine what that's like, I mean, you, you've been through that. Mm-hmm. You've had to, you've had to walk in, in your beautiful daughter's bedroom after this crisis and sit at the dinner table and pass the things that you do every day. And I, I think that if parents understand that then there is no greater fight in the world than keeping our children safe. Right. Cause.
1: Yeah. All you're all in when you get it like that. I mean, it is, uh, unfortunately was made clear to me in a way that I would never wish upon anyone else. Right. But I'm, um, I'm all in, I, you know, we, we just keep throwing obstacles at me and I will just keep tearing them down because it, it matters for our kiddos.
2: And that's unbelievably impressive. And, and if we could just, Let's talk on that for a minute. I mean, because you lived this—the first 24, the first 48. Can you can you kind of talk on your process? How how did you how did you begin to process? And then when did you say, "Okay, I'm in," and I'm and I'm going to spend the rest of my life fighting? Because I can already tell you're you're a warrior and you have a warrior's mindset in fighting yeah. this. So, can you talk us through that? Because I think that's really important for people to hear. Because you went from a grieving parent to a warrior mindset of, I'm, I'm going to compartmentalize and I'm going to go to the school. I'm going to understand this. I'm going to get down to the cause, which I think a lot of people, right, wrong, or indifferent, I don't think it's wrong, run from what happened and you faced it head on and now are dedicating your life to it, to where you have to revisit it all the time. And the pain that you feel from that um, has to be just extraordinary and significant, but yet you're fighting this battle. So can you talk us through that process?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think first we have to acknowledge that we're all like the fabric of us all is is unique, right? So sometimes I think we're tempted to compare how one person does it to how another person, you know, moves forward and survives. And Um, The reality is there's a lot to learn from a lot of survivors out there, a lot of warriors out there, a lot of people with great experience. Um, But for me, I think some of the things that were unique to me, uh, for one, my daughter, she really unwittingly prepared me for this biggest battle of my life. Um, You know, she she's one of three. She's the baby and something about the baby, you know, they're like they're, they're fierce. They're in the middle. Oh, they are. <laughs> they can just tear your house apart, you know, uh, <laughs> that, that's my girl. Um, so, so sure. Like my stamina, um, my dedication, you know, she was a challenge to my balance. Um, she was a kid that came with a lot of a very profound, special needs, you know, as a child with autism and apraxia and a big personality, um, very, very, um, very in the middle of everything. So, you know, her journey and walking along with her through this life and facing all those obstacles um, that she was facing, kind of beside her, that that really, you know, built my muscles for lack of a better, you know, it was like, it was kind of like training um, in in so many ways. Um we, we tackled a lot of things that were just, I don't know, I would have thought were impossible. Um, but but we did them together. The other thing is that um, I'm a person of faith, and that faith was the first thing I fell back on. You know, I, I I feel so blessed and lucky that I was given that. I was I was never like your model Christian. I'm I'm still not, um, but but to be able to trust and know that um, that I wasn't going to walk this alone, and that my daughter was safer than I could ever make her here on this earth. Um, those are, those are profoundly comforting, um, ideals and and visuals that, that supported me and kind of just gave me the, okay, you know, so now what, you know, like I'm on the ground, I got nothing. Um, I'm all yours. So what do you want, what do you want me to do? You know, that was literally the conversation I had with God and, and this is where it brought me. So I don't know, but th- for just being real, it has been very important. Um, it's like, you know, there's no, there's no, I don't have time for pretense. I don't have, uh, you know, time to, to be um, sort of phony and, and keep a facade. I, I just right. don't have time for that. So um, that that's, that's kind of a, a, a little bit of a, a gift that comes from pain sometimes is that you just learn. Um, okay. You know, now, now it's time to be real and, and just face this head on, as you said, Steve.
2: Yeah.
0: Michelle, I, you know, I, I admire that you're able to put your head down and go to work, right. And have faith in God. Um, we often say, unless something personally affects us, we don't get involved. And here we are. We probably spoke on camera a year ago. Uh, We've seen many more mass shootings. How do we get people to understand and get involved if they haven't been personally affected?
1: I think a lot of how we talk about this stuff and explain things to people makes a difference. I know for... For the experiences that I have with people, if you're if you're talking about something that is is just so far out of their realm of comprehending or imagining, um, naturally they're gonna they're gonna tune you out. Or if they don't have the skills to be able to cope with with those things, they're of course going to recoil from them, and they're gonna turn their attention to something else that feels more comfortable or familiar. So I think a lot of it, has a lot of what we do is about making it accessible to people. You know, we are, it's actually not rocket science. You know, it seems like when you look at these problems, as I did, you know, 10 years ago, and I thought, geez, how are, how are we still here? You know, I, I, in the course of my career as an, as an educator, you know, we had, we had more than enough horrific loss and, and tragedy in schools, like, Mm-hmm. Is it still happening? How come we haven't, you know, cracked the code here? And then you start to dig into it and you realize it's, it's because it's not like the invention of antibiotics that we can take some pill and then, you know, we can be cured of of the infection. Um, it, it's actually so much more um, so much more layered, And and that might seem overwhelming at first, but then you realize that we all have a part in it. And if everybody just tackled one layer or brought to the problem what they could offer, um, then then we as a as a community, as a whole, as a nation can actually start making a difference. And I think that's where it's all about. We all play a part. You don't as one person have to be the one who, you know. Who solves it? But you do have a part to play in it, and and that I think is is where we've seen success helping people understand. Okay, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be the one who invents the the antibiotic, uh, but I I will be able to play my part and I look out for um, someone who's hurting. Um, you know, foster relationships with. Uh, with community mental health, with police, with community resources, with school, you know, and, and we, we can play as a team and win at this. Steve?
2: Yeah, um, I think first and foremost, uh, it's, like I said early on, we have a heart issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I understand bad people hurting bad people. I understand bad people hurting good people from a survivor mentality. I even understand good people hurting good people. I don't understand anyone hurting someone who can't defend themselves, um, in, in any way. Right. And I've had to put myself mentally in a lot of criminals minds and figure out why, what makes them tick. Right. And in the intelligence world, we call it mice, you know, um, which is motive. It's based on motives, right? Money, ideology, coercion, and ego. Um, and it's, it's why people do things the way they do. And, 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 you know, ideology is, is a big one, right? Um, and it's conditioned through a lot of different ways. I think educating is really, really important. I think teaching people a mass consumption of situational awareness. And what does that mean? Right. Cause it's a big word. Um, you know, you've got the word situational, and then you've got the word awareness. And so when you, when you put that into a training curriculum, what does that look like? What, you know, when you expect people uh, to be censors in the environment that they're operating, whether it's educators, uh, you know, facility staff, we'll just stay on schools for a second because uh, the workplace violence thing is a big issue as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think
2: more, it's more defendable um, against than school violence, because I think we're dealing with, a lot of status quo. Um, a lot of this is how we've always done it. You know, this is this is what the budget is. I don't think there should be a conversation around budget when it comes to schools. I, I don't. I, I think if we're willing to spend uh, tax dollars on many other exorbitant things that don't really 100%, have value.
0: Yes. Uh, yeah.
2: I agree. I so extrapolate budget from school safety for a second, right? I, I think we take that out of the conversation immediately and we don't ever talk about it again. And the bill is the bill and the taxpayer figures it out and the government gets behind that and the states get behind that. I think the next thing is what we call in our world is is risk management. So mm-hmm. now there's a continuation of assessments being done. And we've, we've done thousands of a school assessments as a company. Um, and I can tell you that, you know, in our people, and I mean that collectively with some of our staff, they've just, before us, they were doing them since 2004, 2003. And what I've found is when you, it's like putting an article that you just wrote in Grammarly, right. And then rewriting it and then putting it in again, you're going to find something after you reread that article three or four times. Security is no different. Yep. Right. Third party validation is key. I think we need to have a very, very good conversation, and it's not from a sales standpoint. there should be tax dollars that pay for this that it should be a a comp and I don't think anybody would be upset about giving you know five, ten a hundred dollars a year on their on their tax bill to to this um, and I think when you start looking at a a large federal or state fund. And I, I've talked to different and I know there's money out there for cameras access control but I, I'm going beyond that because I personally don't believe a well a well-armed adversary will figure out a way in based on structural and physical security standards and I'm sorry but all the standards we talk about produce and mandate are publicly available online so as somebody that's you know studied adversarial behavior and how how bad guys think right I if, if a young you know, teenager wants to go to his high school and start creating carnage and wants to initiate that kill chain, they're going to find a way to do it, whether it's with a firearm, a vehicle, a knife, a bat, whatever. Um, the differentiator is going to be who is there to stop them and how prepared is the environment, That, that in my opinion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I had this epiphany early on. That, oh, we just need to teach everybody how to be tactical and, and teach law enforcement. But it was Oxford really changed my thought process with that because I realized, wait a minute, this happened to one of the best trained sheriff's departments in the world. Um, Sheriff Michael Bouchard spends a lot of money on ammunition training overtime for make sure his officers, I mean, they shoot once once a month. I don't know many agencies that do that. They practice, they do dynamic exercises. They train their SWAT team. They train their SROs. Uh, But I I realized after Oxford that it, why, why are we so focused on law enforcement? Why aren't we focused on the days, the weeks, the months ahead when this person starts to go from radical or starts to go from I'm okay to I'm radical to I'm operational, yep. and then those differentiators between that I and to me that's what I'm just unbelievably passionate about. How do we figure that? So this is part psychology, behavioral behavioral science, uh, behavioral threat indicators, and and then security, physical security, awareness training. I think that's the I think we've been very good at. We need cameras. We need we need guys, gates, guns, guards, as we call it in the security business, but wait a minute, we still have a teacher that doesn't even understand what a firearm looks like, Mm -hmm. that doesn't understand the indicators behind that student drawing the pictures that they're drawing. Mm -hmm. Or the girlfriend that doesn't understand, my boyfriend made a statement and then posted something online about how he's really tired of being bullied and he's going to do something about it.
1: And that's what I mean too, Steve, about it, that we we can we can win at keeping our kids safe if we're playing as a team, right? So yeah, making sure that the environment is as safe and secure and equipped as possible and that, you know, responding agencies are are ready, um, they're prepared. But, you know, more than half of the equation is the people in the building, the kids, the right. teachers, the custodians, the secretaries. Um, you know the parents and on and on right so so we need i think that that is is where we are right now is how do we engage kind of back to your question natasha how do we how do we engage people in this so that we don't keep getting that you know head in the sand thing sure people like steve are driven and passionate and they're going to keep doing what they do and they're going to be a great asset to us in this war but what about what about the rest of of you know um, of the treasures of the you know the assets that we have yeah. the the eyes and the ears that our kids and our teachers are um, our community based mental health um, just even there's been tremendous work in Michigan and in, in your neck of the woods in terms of um, making sure that school communities have appropriate behavioral threat assessment programs in place you know that's something in, in my day when I was a teacher. I, I didn't know what that was. You know, I, that was something that the police do. And like the, you know, the, that was not something on, on our radar at all. And yet now I think people are, the tide is slowly beginning to turn because people are realizing, well, wait a minute, I, I am part of this. And, you know, it is my responsibility to, um, to, to look out for my community, for my kids, for my colleagues and keep this place safe. So you are seeing a, a more open
0: table, if you will, from school districts across the country. Is that what I'm hearing? You're seeing
1: the progression. Am. Yeah, I absolutely am. And the, the 10 years that we've been at this, um, I stumbled onto behavioral threat assessment, that process, for example, since we're on that um, early on. And I thought, gosh, how are we going to, how are we going to, this is, again, not rocket science. Like security and 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 those types of um, procedures and practices, that's not rocket science either, and we're still having a hard time getting people to you know lock their doors, uh, you know. Exactly. During, during uh, times when we need to protect our kids and teachers, um, but here we are with this, and this is like really next level. Really helping people understand, there's a long trajectory before somebody ever gets, as you said, operational. You know, where somebody is, you know, has made their plan and they're, you know, they're ready to, to commit an act of violence. Um, we have a lot of opportunities, and and really just, you know, facing head on. Um, the the past and the pathway to violence that our attacker took at Sandy Hook opened my eyes to the fact that there were multiple points along this man's this young man's life um, where where we could have turned him another way, you know, where there there were opportunities to to intervene and to do things differently um, for the sake of, that individual, those around, you know, that individual, but also just, you know, from a a protective standpoint, if we know that there is someone who's a little bit unstable in our community, well, then there are things we can do to try to balance safety a little bit better and and employ some more protective strategies, as well as, you know, intervening um, to try to right that person, you know, in in the middle of that challenge that they're facing.
2: Well, and I I think that, you know, when we were going down this road of kind of the, the pathway to violence, if you will, we started researching some crazy statistics and what we were finding was abnormal um, and I would have never expected. And one of them was, I'm gonna read from here, but 93% of attacks were planned in advance. Mm. And when I heard that, I'm like, that's that's crazy. And another one was 93% of attackers engaged in behavior prior to the attack that caused others to be concerned. Yep. Well, who's others? (laughs) I'd like to, I'd like, you know, if I'm an investigator, right, I'd like to know who they are. um, Because I think there's, there's two things that go to that, right, is fear to report or lack of knowledge in, in why to report. So I think we can address nationally the lack of knowledge piece.
1: 100%.
2: And I think through legislation, we can address the fear because if you don't and you knew, then to me, you're, you're an accomplice at the end of the day.
1: 100%. Yeah, I mean, really educating people and, and, and identifying for them um, their resources, right? So re- reporting is, is one thing, and it's a very important thing. But if you're reporting into kind of a, an echo chamber or a vacuum or that person who's receiving that report doesn't quite know what to do with it because they're not plugged into the resources and we're not really getting anywhere. We're kind of spinning our wheels. So I think we really need to think through the the whole process when, you know, when others <laughs> are concerned. I like that. Who are others? You know, I want to know these others. Uh, but when others are concerned, um, you know, let's, let's not just give them one mechanism for speaking up to to you know raise the flag and say hey help needed over here let's give them multiple because we don't know for sure that one single chain of events will will you know follow through to completion we want to make sure that there are multiple places and avenues that that our others can you know reach out for those resources and those supports
2: well and it and it, and it was interesting cuz one of the other things with that was you talk about support 61% of attackers were motivated by a desire for revenge and 34% of attackers were motivated by attempts to solve a problem. So there, there's this, like you said, this trajectory that occurs long prior to the event or the, the, the kill chain, as we like to call it in law enforcement being initiated. So where is Where is that? Because I think that things like significant personal loss or humiliation, right, that's evident in our in our potential warning signs list. Right. We know from a behavioral threat management standpoint that, okay, this person just lost a mother, father, aunt, uncle, you know, dog, whatever. They're dealing with something. So in your experience, after 10 years of doing this, how do you how do you approach that?
1: again i think it's a, a whole of a whole of community approach that's going to be our difference maker because every, every community is different some are are far better resourced and and some have an un, unprecedented scarcity of support resources but if we can at least educate communities to be part of recognizing, you know, this this person is hurting. If, if somebody is hurting because they lost a parent or a best friend or, you know, we should be supporting, period. You know, we should be doing the right thing by that person, period. Um, and in just doing the right thing and stepping up for people we might be staving off some of those those hurts that fester, that become grievances, that become you know all sorts of, of things um, that become you know wounds that that become plans and you know um, desires for for vengeance and you know this perception of injustice and and all of those things that we see in those in the ninety three percent you know that you're talking about all all of those cases there is this common, you know, whether it's, whether it's justified or not in our eyes, it's, it's their experience. And, you know, when someone is hurting or someone is confused, it is our responsibility to, to try to step in and provide some support.
2: Well, I, I heard a quote the other day and uh, it struck me regarding this about community. And it, it was something to the effect. And I had it somewhere on my desk. I wrote it down. Somebody said it. And I was like, that is, that is brilliant. It takes a it takes a village to to raise a child. And if the child does not feel the warmth of that village, they will burn it down to feel warm. And I was like, whoa.
1: Right. I and mean, that's what we're seeing. That's yeah. what we're experiencing as a society in communities all across the country and the world now. That's what we're seeing.
2: And I think that, you know, I we all find ourselves, you know, work life balance, right? When you know, my little boy Rowan runs up and Daddy, Daddy, excuse me, Daddy. That's his new thing is excuse me. <laughs> Everything.
1: Polite. He's a polite interrupter. Uh,
2: he, but it, uh, but it doesn't stop. Like I have to acknowledge or or excuse yeah. me gets into you know a fist fight with him yeah. just hitting my side. Um, and the other day I realized, you know, nothing, nothing is more important than when he's saying excuse me because he needs me, and I've. I tell you, you know, it's, it's, I tend to take these situations, you know, when I, when I study them or we're involved in, or we're responding to a workplace or something with kids, even the human trafficking stuff, counter human trafficking stuff that we do. And I correlate it back to my own children. Just, I think it's fear, but I realized I was doing something really important, had a customer deadline for a security proposal. And I just stopped and I just said, you know what, I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm missing right now, but whatever it is may curb something down the road. And I think that that's part of the conversation too, because it's, we talk about community. We talk about the village, you know, raising the child, it it is important. And I think that, you know, that just hit, that just hit a nerve with me because I don't think we're tying that too much into this conversation Mm -hmm. in the way where, you know, and and we have a saying in the military and you'll love it. It it was every soldier is a censor meaning everyone on the battlefield that was seeing something that becomes data. Mm
0: -hmm. And,
2: and how do we communicate that? Right. Same in law enforcement. Every officer is a sensor on the street, especially in a big city. I think every teacher, every administrator, every student is a sensor in a school. How do we, how do we build that concept out to one it's safe to have this conversation. Um, My son told me the other day, they are not, my 12 year old, they are not learning about, war in a factual, you know, um kind of setting about war because it's violent.
1: Mm. Um
2: so they don't learn about the battle of the bulge. They don't learn about, you know, certain conflicts that have happened because it it's ego because I, you know, we watch documentaries and stuff all the time. Um and he's like, Dad, they don't they won't even teach us about that because they don't want to have the conversation about what happened. Mm-hmm. Um you know, to 6 million people during World War II. And I'm like, well, buddy, that that's that's a that's a pretty bold statement. How do you know? And then I actually talked to a teacher. I was and they're like, yeah, you know, we kind of teach on this because we don't want. I think part of it is we're not having community conversations with our children that are real. I will tell you that my son knows everything about what an active shooter is going to look like. Um, And partly that is he's grown up around it. Right. I don't.
0: Steve has training. two sons, by the way, just
2: so you know. Yeah, the five-year-old, not so much, but the 12-year-old, he's he's been there. He's actually, he went to an active shooter training back in December with me for a police department, um, and I really believe that, it, and I don't expect everybody, you know, I don't expect everybody's kids to go to jiu-jitsu or Krav Maga or know how to fire a firearm and know how to defend their, like, I don't expect that, because quite frankly, I don't expect a lot of adults to be responsible for that either, but. Why is it not okay for kids to come and tell us as administrators' parents, hey, so-and-so said this online? In fact, seeing these kids on Snapchat and some of these other things, I, I would have never talked to another kid the way some of these kids do. So how do we address that? Because I'm sure that I saw on your website, you guys address bullying because it's a pre-incident indicator. It is for- 100%.
1: Yeah. And again, it's something we can intervene you know, to prevent, to stop, to write. You know, those are all those misbehaviors are those like those red flags. Those are those things like the sensor should be going off. Something's not right. We need to course adjust. We need to provide some support. We need to provide some intervention. Um, all of those things are are those kind of you know points along the way. There there are opportunities. There are opportunities, and and you know addressing those things. Um, we can, you know, we can flip the whole scenario, and and you know, it is, it is not necessarily likely that someone who's experiencing bullying or or someone who's perpetrating bullying is, you know, that that's gonna result in something like what we experienced at Sandy Hook. Um, it may, it's a possibility. We know this, um, but it will lead to long term consequences, long term pain, long term suffering. We can't
2: have that. In, in Can our- we talk about that? Mm-hmm. Can we, what, what do you think those because I think that's a really important segue. What do you think those long-term effects are?
1: Depression, anxiety, isolation, withdrawal, all of these things are very very unhealthy for the individual. They're unhealthy for the community. We need every member of our community you know, you just said it takes a village. We need every single person engaged, doing what they were put on this earth to do what makes their heart sing, whatever it is that they can contribute to our our community, our families, um, the kind of micro communities that we have in the form of workplaces and and schools and, and so on and so forth. But I want to go back to something you were talking about with, uh, you know, not expecting everybody to be that warrior to be that, you know, because it is it is exceptional let's face it for a 12 year old like your 12 year old son to have that kind of knowledge you know but there are kids that there are kids that for whom that is empowering and that they're they're able and 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 capable and with the proper support of parents and and their families and and the right form of education for them they you know they can go down that path and they maybe one day become heroes in our, in our community in the form of law enforcement or military or um, EMT or, you know, who knows. Right. But by and large, for most kids, it's just about the basics. It's about, you know, knowing when something feels safe or unsafe, it doesn't feel right. And I'm not sure what to do with this, but I, I, like my spidey sense is, is kicking in. So what am I going to do about it? You know, Um, or, or even just in terms of, um, of situational awareness, like that alone is an incredibly empowering concept to give to our kids and our teachers and our community members. And sadly, we're like moving farther and farther away from that. Like how many videos have you seen where someone's like on the phone and they fall into like a manhole or a fountain or, you know, something like that. Right. So we've, we've got to kind of get people back to, to, like the real world, you know, um, and, and that has, we have to be giving them honest experiences, um, teaching the basics about what look, know what's around you, how many different ways could you get to safety? Where could you go if, if it wasn't safe? Um, who could help you? You know, what would you even say if you were gonna call 911? That's great that we teach all of our kids 911. Um, it's amazing um, how young they are and they can still call 911 but now what do they say? You know, how do they communicate? What's the language? What are the words? So kind of dialing it back for people. Um, but I have to say, I'm struck by what you were, what you were sharing, what your son was sharing about um, not really being given the context, if you will, of like what, what something like war is, you know, if we're depriving your understanding of violence, then it seems to me that that perhaps is why we're seeing some of these aberrant behaviors on social media or this bullying or because they're not necessarily connecting that those are kind of baby steps in the wrong direction. Right. And uh, you know, not, not understanding the facts of, of history um, is a very, very dangerous thing. That's, that's something that could lead us, unfortunately, as we know, to re- to repeat that history.
2: Well, I, I would, Totally agree. And I tell people all the time, you know, I, I too, um, got saved by a good God. And I can tell you that I tell people I'm a violent Christian, um, you know, hurt, hurt, hurt good people. And, and you'll, and you'll see what I've spent a lifetime preparing to do. Um, hardest thing for me is I know I can't be everywhere. Um, and so I've conditioned both boys even early on, I mean, I sometimes play a game, that I played with my oldest, with my youngest, which is eyes and ears. When we're out somewhere, what do you see? What do you hear? Um, you know, love those two that. senses. I right? love that.
1: And you don't have to be a warrior. We all have different DNA. Like we all. That's right. right. That's right. But to just, but you do have eyes and ears and, you know, you know, when something doesn't feel right. So what would you do? Who's
2: carrying, who's carrying a firearm in here? I mean, I do that with my 12 year old all the time. Who, where, where, where would a firearm be, be most practical in this, in this restaurant right now? Um, You know, who in here looks like they'd be an off duty police officer who in here looks like they might be kind of a rougher individual. Um, And, and then also teaching grace with that, right? Because my concept has always been, and again, this isn't for everyone. If if I think you're a threat, I want to get as close to you as possible. Meaning, hey, how are you today? Uh, can I help you? Because once I'm once I'm here and I'm and I've got my hands and we're talking, we're having that conversation. Now I'm in control. Um, and a lot of times, you know, I've, I've been in many situations doing the executive protection stuff and what have you over the years, where I have you know, a protectee. And I, and this person's very interested in my person. Now I've got to figure that out. And I. so I've conditioned the boys to be the same way. And what's interesting to me is I talk to other parents, even other parents of, of you know, who's, who are in law enforcement or what have you. And, and they're like, oh, my, my kids are just, they don't even really know what I do. You know, I don't, I don't really talk because, you know, they want to keep them away from it. And I think that, you know, one of the things that stuck out to me on the over 10 million data points we've collected on acts of violence, um, because we've we have a massive spreadsheet of all these different acts that we've studied and in what people did beforehand, the days, hours, weeks, where they went, they went to 7-Eleven, got a big gulp. Why? What did they do at 7-Eleven? There's because there's a lot of investigative notes to to a lot of these data points, and what I've seen is there were multiple iterations with a lot of these active aggressors where they wanted somebody to stop them. And yet no one either had, I don't want to say the courage because I think that's aggressive, but I think it had the ability or the understanding. Um, I think that there's also many instances where those folks were stopped by law enforcement on the way to commit an act. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, Stephen Paddock, 2017, Las Vegas. I mean, how in the world can someone with one of the best trained cities in the world when it comes to situational awareness and and acts of violence and mitigation be with the best CCTV system in in the country Mm -hmm. be unaware? And I think that it's what we call complacency, right? Um, People get complacent. It happens in combat. So, I think
1: a lot of it is that look away, like, oh, that feels uncomfortable. I'm going to look away, you know, that, that conditioning that we have as a society. And I think that's where we miss out on on the engagement of the, the larger community, because like I'm not going I'm not the one that is going to kick down the door, but I might notice something. Um, and instead of turning away, if I look a little longer, I might get information that I can then pass on
2: that can be. How useful. do you process that?
1: so i think i think that's where we are that's what that's what's so challenging about engaging ordinary folks like natasha and me you know in this in this process is they don't necessarily have the the recourse they don't have the neural pathways like you've been trained you you're talking to your young children and kind of creating those neural pathways and those thought processes but for for many people like they and they're kind of uncomfortable because they know I probably should do something I probably should say something I'm not really sure what I'm seeing I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do about it I'm not sure what I'm how do I even articulate this and where do I go with it so I think if we can back the bus up and help people to process that and just go okay wait a minute something something really doesn't feel right. And, and I I, doesn't seem logical, but I'm going to go with that. I'm going to sit with that uncomfortable feeling for a little bit. I'm going to think about it and I'm going to take it somewhere, you know? So we really do have to teach people what is their recourse? What is, you know, what are the words? What's the process? How do I do this? Because when you do like, look at tip lines, right? Over the past, you know, several decades. Look at the success of tip lines because we created a pathway for people to, no. to insert information, to, to input information. And one thing, you can say what you want to say about social and all of that and where we are right now, but people are very willing to speak up if you teach them how, teach them where, give them the steps, um, give them the language. And that
0: starts Young. So this I think this starts, I'm going to even take it a step further back. So I think this starts, especially with little girls. Both of my children at some point have been told don't get in the drama, don't get involved. And I take the exact opposite approach. I'm like, were you using your voice to speak up for someone that wasn't using theirs? Yes, mommy, I've got your back. I'm not going to teach my kids to be polite and proper and keep their mouth shut and be a good good little girl that is not what we need to keep messaging to our children especially little girls use your voice if you see someone being treated poorly you absolutely get involved that's how i am that's how i'm raising my kids to be i i'm not standing by i'm not going to be quiet and if that makes your teacher's job harder at the end of the day then it does and i'm sorry But you did the right thing. Now that doesn't mean you get to cause drama. Don't get me wrong. But Mm -hmm. if you are using your voice on behalf of someone that can't in an in an uncomfortable situation, well done. Exactly. I I, I think the narrative has to change from very early on, especially around little girls.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. Especially with girls. Especially with and I just biologically, our girls are a. Even a bit more observant than than our little boys, right? So let's, let's harness that. Let's harness that.
0: We go in oh, a parking so. lot now, and she'll say, "Mom, creeper, over there. I I don't like the vibe. I don't like that guy." And I'm like, "Okay, thanks. Let me let me get a let me get a look. You know who I'm talking right. about." Uh, yeah, and and part of it is working for a security company that puts so much value on situational awareness. It has opened my eyes, I was already cognizant because being a news anchor, you see the worst case scenario play out every time. Yeah. So I was cognizant of it could happen to anyone, anywhere. So I've never had that head in the sand mentality, but yeah. now having worked at TNG and being situational awareness, just driven home on a daily basis. Now I know you you don't, you know, like it starts very basic. When we go into the parking lot, look around. Don't go by the kidnapper van. You know what I
1: mean? Like that. 100%. Did you ever read, I think we might have talked about this, Natasha. Did you ever read The Gift of Fear? By Gavin yeah. De Becker. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people, I always say to people, like, you know, they're like, threat assessment. What does it sound so complicated? Did it sound like just read the gift of fear. Like, really, what we're, t- you don't have to be a threat assessment expert, a psychologist, a forensics, you know, psychiatrist, what a psychologist, uh, you know, th- that you don't have to be an expert to that level, but you do have to be able to recognize that feeling in your gut that creeper, you know, sort of like alarm bell that's going off when you're around someone, you don't, you do not need to unpack it right then and there. You just need to get away. You know, you just need to take the basic, the basic steps, but you do need to honor your instincts. And I think, especially with girls, but with many of our kids, we are teaching them away from their instincts because we're trying to, you know, just like keep the peace. like keep, keep moving. Everybody keep quiet.
2: Yep. So, so it's funny because you, you, both ladies, you're touching on something that I, I'm trying to scream on a mountaintop daily, right? Um, I don't expect everybody to be a, a, a highly trained, skilled, you know, John Wick in the room. I don't, but here's, but here's the thing. For me, it's always been uh, pre-incident indicators, right? What are they? And then get into people do things because they have placement and access to do them. And then the other side of this is, you know, when you, you know, start to look at an aggressor, an aggressor and we use a process corporately, and you may have heard of it, but it's it's very simple. It's it's risk equals threats times vulnerabilities divided by countermeasures times impacts. I wanna to understand what a risk looks like, whether it's in it, we do it when we assess schools. I need to know what the threats are to that school, mm-hmm. right? And then I need to list those out and then I need to know what the vulnerabilities are. And a vulnerability is, 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 it could be physical. It could be, could be something that is lended from a natural disaster an effect. Um, and then you, what countermeasures do I have? Right. And, and how do I quantify those and what are they? And, and, you know, how are they broken by a threat? Um, and then go from that to the impacts here are my impacts based on the three variables of my, you know, my threats, vulnerabilities and, and my countermeasures. And then once I list that out, now I can come to a quantitative understanding of what my risks are. Mm-hmm. You know, the other side of this is going to be for me when wrong looks wrong, report it. it, it, it you know, I mean, there's, there's many County Sheriff's deputies and, and and police officers that are sitting somewhere, you know, wanting a call for service to come in, wanting to go and investigate something I think all too often we, we tend to drive past uh, potential chaos because either we're untrained, but you said it earlier, it's this avoidance factor, right? It's, it's mental avoidance. It's mm-hmm. fear. And, and Gavin DeBecker does a great job in the gift of fear approaching this issue um, because fear is a gift, but being able to control your fear uh, and your Thank reaction to it.
1: And, and it. It. yeah, it's your red flag. It's your, oh yeah. I, I don't like that feeling, but that's, that's the red flag that, that is my, literally my God given gift that, you know, something's not, something's not right. And I need to take action.
2: It's discernment. It's mm-hmm, discernment, right? And I, you know, I'll tell you, my, my wife has some of the best discernment when it comes to people and places. I mean, she can, she'll just be like, I, I got to check in my spirit. We, we should go, and I'm like, we're not leaving. I'm staying, you know. <laughs> but you know, that's. She's like, we got the kids. We need to leave. I mean, and and it's been kind of one of those things for me where I I don't think you can teach discernment. Uh, I think that's that's a gift, but you can teach recognition.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and I think there's a big difference between discernment, judgment. I feel this because. I, I have a connection where I it's just it's a it's a God given gift to be able to discern, you know, what we call facts for increased threat ratios. If you're somebody that just runs around and like that's wrong, that's wrong. But now if you're trained in recognition, which is absolutely I mean, somebody can become a behavioral threat expert from Google. I'm just gonna just throw it out there for yeah, people listening.
1: Yeah, it's not rocket science, right? So if no. you're if you're a good reader you know, these are not, these are not big concepts. So, no. you know, you really, you really can, you know, follow, follow the research and uh, learn from the case studies and, you know, gain a significant amount of, of knowledge there for
2: sure. How do you see, you know, one, one question is, how, how do you counsel or advise parents that are going to deal through this tragedy, tragedy? How do you, how do you see them having to deal and process. What's your, what's your recommendations to them?
1: You know, I, I think as it, I I fell back, I guess another when I was talking about my fabric and things that kind of make us who we are and set us set in some ways, set us up um, in a positive way for overcoming challenges or tragedies or or even grief and loss in our life. One of the things was uh, my, my education and my experience as a teacher. And one thing we do, as teachers is we, we try to, we try to look for two furs and three furs. And what I mean by that is like, if I'm going to teach you how to evacuate the classroom, or if I'm going to teach you, you know, some, a simple skill of addition, I don't want you to use it in one context. I want you to be able to use it across a wide variety of of potential situations and, and life experiences that you might run into. Like when, when we teach addition and subtraction in the classroom, I hope my hope is that you're going to go use it in the grocery store and when you're shopping and balancing your checkbook and, you know, making decisions in life for, for yourself and your family. Um, mm-hmm. But the same goes for safety, right? So, um, you know, I, I, want, I want you to be able to use this skill of leaving, um, you know, w- without me potentially um, when the fire alarm goes off. I want you to know and I want you to rehearse these, these movements and I want you to be, be comfortable with them. I also want to experiment and do, you know, let's shake it up a little bit. I want you to try to try to outside of the box. So what are some other ways you can get to safety? But what that's called is generalization. You know, that's that's what we in in education term as generalization. So you're using these skills. um, They're becoming part of you. It's tools in your tool belt and and you can now, you know, use those elsewhere. Um, But, you know, back to. processing grief and tragedy and loss and, and moving forward, I think um, I drew upon a lot of a lot of my prior life experiences. I never thought I would look fondly upon, you know, other hardships that I had experienced in life. But it really did give me the literally the strength, the muscles to to start putting one foot in front of the other. But I learned a lot from other people's adversities as well. And, and it didn't have to be one that was very closely related to my own experience. I, like I didn't just learn um, and gain strength from people who had experienced the very specific, you know, tragedy that I had, the loss of a very young child. Um in, in a mass shooting in an elementary school. I mean, you can get really specific about your 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 tragedy experience, or you can kind of step back and go, who has experienced something also unimaginable? Something that none of us thinks we could ever possibly recover from. I wanna to talk to that person. I wanna to talk to the Holocaust survivors. I wanna to talk to the cancer survivors. I wanna to talk to, you know, Amputees. I want. I want to talk to people who, you know, who probably any of us would look at and go, "I can't imagine. I don't think I would have been able to survive that." I want to talk to them because they they have found a way, and they they have something to offer, and I have something to offer. So that that for me was very helpful. That's not the way it works for everybody, Um, but but I wanted to talk to people who had um, who had. Found it in themselves and others to carve a new path, you know, one that they never expected they would be on, one that they never expected they would, they would have to walk. Um, but here they are and, and they do. Um, and that, that's something that, that really helped me a lot. And, uh, and just, just knowing that, that, I had my faith to fall back on that I could I could ask really tough questions of God and he could take it, you know, um, and, and that he was going to um, be there with me, not going to solve all my problems here on this earth, but but be there with me and help, you know, bring good people into my life to help carry me along.
0: Michelle, I read on a lot of, you know, articles that, that they talk to you about reliving this moment every time there's a mass shooting. How do you... How do you shut that down? Do you have to turn the TV off? Like, how do you how do you shut or do you seek more knowledge in that shooting in that
1: moment? How do you handle those moments where you learn
0: like everyone else? It's
1: interesting. I can't do it right away. You know, my phone starts blowing up. Everyone starts, you know, sending messages and are you okay? and, And all of that. And I'm like, I'm I'm, I'm not right there <laughs> right now. You know, I'm going yeah. to wait until I'm, I'm going to first get on my knees and I'm going to pray for the families and the community. And that's where I'm going to be for quite a long time. And then um, when I'm ready, uh, I'll, I'll start the learning. You know, I'll start, I'll start the learning and looking for, for ways that, that we can be of help. Um, we're always going to be there for anyone who wants to reach out and and try to gain support the way that that I did from others. Um, right. We want to do that as well for for other, but we we don't show up uninvited., uh, we don't self-deploy. um you know, people people there's a there's a whole trajectory to the the process. And I think a, a lot of people think, you know, that immediately going and swarming a community and, you know, offering your help is, is the way to go. Um, But I would, I would say not to, not to, (laughs) I would say, you know, wait, um, you know, let them receive. Yeah. Let them, let them find their feet. Um, You know, it was kind of a shock to me to learn that like, you don't, you don't start therapy right away. Right. You, you have to wait a little while until you're literally out of that, that shock period before you can, before you can do anything, before you can make any any big decisions, so it's it's different. it's different for everyone, for sure.
2: It's it's often been said by, you know, brothers of mine that were in combat that, what they what they experienced the trauma, the tragedy, you know, whether it's loss of limbs or loss of brothers. And and I can speak to this from my experience too. It, the battlefield in my brain was much worse than a battlefield in real life. And did did you did you feel that?
1: Yeah, I would. I would hundred percent say that. I think that probably Steve is why I was so insistent upon getting the facts, all of the facts, no matter how scary they were and how horrible they were, because they were horrible. Um, they were unthinkable, but they were not nearly as horrible as the human mind has the power to, to imagine, you know, and, and, and just, and, you know, I found myself kind of on a loop early on of like all of the different horrible possibilities. So if I could just pin it down to one, then I was, um, you know, I was, I was hurting my heart and my soul a lot less. And I was able to then deal with that, that very specific set of facts um, rather than trying to deal with dozens and dozens um, so so facts for me at least um, were were very important um, getting getting to the getting to the truth was really important to the healing process
2: did you did you feel that a take every thought captive until you had those thoughts kind of mentality or you had the facts behind because your mind does one thing and the facts tell a different story right so I I've always processed, and I don't know if the, if you can relate to this. Is I'm going to take every thought captive, and I'm going to figure out. I'm not going to let you know the enemy take take my mind over from this. And it could be something small in life, right, or it could be a tragedy. But it did you find that you were able to step back and get composure before you knew what your next mission was, or was it? After that, you really became—I don't want to say hardened because I don't think that's the right word—but prepared for the things you would hear in the future.
1: Um, let me think about that. I think, I think, um, definitely when when those thoughts were creeping in, recognizing those, and then identifying, okay, these are my these are the things I need to find out. These are the questions I have. I'm going to go find the answers, you know, um, being able to just be aware of that process and kind of like, like you were saying, not let my thoughts take control of me, not let my worries and my, um, imaginings take control of me, but like grabbing a hold of them in that sense. And then, and then determining that I was going to, you know, run that down, um, was helpful in terms of being able to do something with, the experience. Um, it's a very strange thing, but before I even knew or understood what had fully transpired that day, I, I felt a very strong, um, prompting that you have to do something. You have to step up. This is, this is not okay. We can do better. um, and, and you are going to do this. Um, so, so I just kind of knew that and accepted that. Um, and I, but I also uh, somehow was able to allow myself time to get to where I could be productive, you know, um, because I, I, I don't think that people just spring right back up after they have experienced something like this. You know, it, it takes you time to find your feet and to, to learn, um, and, and find a way that you, that you can be of help, that you can be a contributor. I wow. certainly that...
0: have contributed. I want to get to a little bit, um, just being respectful of everyone's time. I do want to get to what you're doing with safe and sound schools. Is there anything you'd like to tell everyone about? You know, so much. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to be, like I said, in your neck of the woods, probably mid November. So look out for, if you don't subscribe to our little, uh, our little e-blast. Please do. You can do that on our on our site. There's a little you know, subscribe or join us or something, button like that on the website um, to, to keep you abreast of all those things. Um, so we'll have a, an in-person summit. Yay, in-person. We're back in person. I know, it's so exciting. Uh, mm-hmm. We have another one in Tennessee this summer. We have our another Dallas one uh, in September. We have our virtual we celebrate School Safety Week every year with our virtual national summit. Um, so that's that's thousands of geeks like us right here um, that join and and you know just kind of share knowledge and um, you know kind of catch catch up on the latest and greatest in terms of programs and interventions and education and training. So that will be um, mid October, 17th, 18th, and 19th. So even if you can't get on a plane. You can absolutely get on your computer and and join us that way. Um, and then we just have a lot of really exciting programs. Um, the kind of reinvigoration uh, of our, our safe and sound students program is is on the horizon. Um, we were talking about community engagement, right? Tra- talking about using um, the amazing sensors and skills and eyes and ears of our students. Yeah. Uh, we have- parents for safer schools program as well, that will be um, getting infused with some some updates as well. We have our especially safe program, which is very much in in Josephine's honor um, about helping schools to better prepare and train um, even our youngest kids and our kids like Joey who have special needs uh, to be safe and sound. Uh, And then we have some really exciting stuff coming literally in your neck of the woods um, in the form of some partnerships with MSU. Um, So I I can't give anything else away just yet, but I promise that um, it's going to be awesome. And um, I think really, uh, you know, bring our national community together around what we can do to make sure everybody's safe and sound
2: amazing absolutely absolutely amazing um i i'm looking forward to whatever we can do to support you guys you guys are just a phenomenal i mean my heart goes out to you and your family and um you know goes without saying should you guys need anything our listeners there's a host of people in this industry that that are that listen to this podcast and are dedicated to school safety and keeping children safe on so many different levels so please reach out to Michelle, her team, um, and, and get involved. Uh, this is one cause that, that we will be involved in, and we would love to see our partners and our listeners involved as well.
0: Absolutely, and I'll include all of your information, of course, in the write-up. And thanks to all of you for listening to Time to Head North. You can find more episodes on our website, TNGdefense.com. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Steve, and have a great day, everyone.
2: Thank you.